It's from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28, and verse 58, and it's on page 4 of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Lo cierto es que en Cristo ha sido levantado todo de entre los muertos, como primicias de los que murieron. De hecho, ya que la muerte vino por medio de un hombre, también por medio de un hombre viene la resurrección de los muertos. Pues así, como en Adán todos mueren, también en Cristo todos volverán a vivir, pero cada uno en su debido orden. Cristo, las primicias, después cuando Él venga, los que le pertenecen, entonces vendrá el fin. Cuando Él entregue el reino a Dios el Padre, luego de destruir todo dominio, autoridad y poder, porque es necesario que Cristo reine hasta poner a todos sus enemigos debajo de sus pies. El último enemigo que será destruido es la muerte, pues Dios ha sometido todo a su dominio. Al decir que todo ha quedado sometido a su dominio, es claro que no se incluye a Dios mismo, quien todo lo sometió a Cristo, y cuando todo le sea sometido, entonces el Hijo mismo se someterá a aquel que le sometió todo, para que Dios sea todo en todos. Por lo tanto, mis queridos hermanos, manténganse firmes e incomovibles, progresando siempre en la obra del Señor, conscientes de que todo su trabajo en el Señor no es en vano. Thank you, Rachel and Elmer. We're continuing in our in-depth study of this one chapter in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, study of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me pause and pray before we get started. Jesus, we ask that you'd be present and that you would show yourself to us, that you'd speak to our hearts, that you would affect our minds as well as our souls, that you would move our lives in a way that reflects the realities that are revealed here in this passage. We ask that you would do this in a way that uh, glorifies yourself, causes us to love you more and worship you more and be more curious about who you are, hungry to know you. That's our desire. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you saw it, On Tuesday, in the morning, high in the sky, flying and soaring through the downtown region of Washington, D.C., the space shuttle Discovery, mounted on top of a jumbo jet, 
making its final glorious passageway from Cape Canaveral or the Kennedy Space Station uh, down here to Washington. A lot of hype. I didn't even see it, and I feel like I was there. Because so many people were talking about it, posting pictures left and right, every news outlet showing images of this wonderful thing, this uh, symbol of hope, this symbol of progress, our conquest of outer space as a human race, coming down to settle down once and for all in a Smithsonian Museum down in Chantilly, Virginia. It was a big deal, and then it was over, but it was a big deal, right? And here's the question, and this is sort of the question we've been batting around here. Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is Easter, any different from that space shuttle moment last week? You know, where it's sort of a spectacle for a little bit and then the time passes on. Where you kind of ooh and awe at it. Maybe you get a little nostalgic about what it meant to you and how significant it was in the past. But now you know it belongs in a museum. And when it finally touches down, you kind of move on with your life. It's the resurrection of Jesus, whether if you are investigating it here for the first time with skepticism, perhaps, or if you're a Christian that's fully on board, but where you basically treat it like a relic from the past, but a reality that has no relevance whatsoever in your lives. What this passage is showing us, has been showing us, is that far from being an irrelevant relic, the resurrection of Jesus ought to have such power in our lives, if we get it, if we really get it, that it ought to spark nothing less than a revolution. A revolution. We're taking our cues from the last verse, verse 58, which we have been repeating every single week because it's, it comes at the end of a long explanation that Paul engages in explaining the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. And he gets to this point to say, so what should be the result of believing in this stuff? What should be the consequences of embracing the resurrection of Jesus? Verse 58, confidence, energy, Hope-filled labor, overflowing activity in life, doing the work of the Lord in every corner of life. And so two weeks ago, we talked about how the resurrection provides revolutionary freedom from the power, the crippling power of guilt. You can listen to that online if you'd like to. And last week, we talked about how the resurrection of Jesus offers revolutionary freedom from the paralyzing power of the fear of death. That if you actually get a hold of Jesus' resurrection and you see that He has set you free from the guilt of your sins and your flaws, and that He does set you free from the power of death through His death and His life, Wouldn't life be radically different? Daily life, day-to-day life, everyday life. 
Now we're looking at a third element. And the key to today's passage is understanding how the Apostle Paul describes Jesus as the new Adam. The new Adam. You see, of course, there's the first Adam, the original Adam, the original human being. And Jesus is compared to him. We see this especially in verses 21 and 22. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. The first Adam and then the new Adam, Jesus. For as in all Adam all die, the original Adam, so in Christ all will be made alive. The new Adam. Jesus is the new Adam. And there are two main major implications that Paul is getting at here, and this is what I want to look at. That first of all, because Jesus is the new Adam, the resurrection is a restored creation. The resurrection is a restored creation. And then secondly, because Jesus is the new Adam, the resurrection is a restored calling. Those two things, and then we'll do some Q&A. All right, so first, a restored creation. Do you understand that this passage is telling us that the whole universe, the entire cosmos, one day will itself experience a resurrection from the dead? That everything in this life, spiritual and physical, will be given new life, infinite life, perfected life, glorious, substantial life. Jesus, friends, came not just to make our lives a little bit easier, not just to ease our consciences, though He does those things. He didn't come just to give us a little bit of religion or just one of many options. Jesus came to remake creation itself. And the language of Jesus as the new Adam calls to mind the story of Genesis where Paul is saying it's Genesis all over again, remixed. Jesus came to give the world a fresh start, to heal all the brokenness in this world, to heal all of its wounds, which, as we know, is just one of the deepest longings of all of our hearts. Take a look. This is how Paul reasons this through in the passage. He reminds us first that the present world that we live in is in fact infected and distorted by evil, by brokenness, by oppression, by sin, by crippling forms of injustice. And what Jesus is doing, Paul tells us, is that he is dismantling all of these hostile forces, defeating them by his death and resurrection, and then implementing the full victory when he returns one day to get back all that he had won for himself in his life and his death. Verse 26, we're told that the last enemy of this world to be destroyed is death. But that doesn't mean that's the only enemy in this world. 
We're told in verse 24 that Jesus will finally destroy one day all dominion, all authority, all power, all imposter tyrants that are ruling over this world like death, like disease, like decay, the falling apart of our bodies, like disorder in our relationships, in our human communities, like discrimination of all sorts and kinds, like injustice in our economic structures, as well as in our individual uses of our material possessions. Like injustice in the way that power is dispensed and used from superior to those beneath them or from peer to peer. All these powers that are hostile to God and His authority over this world were told that Jesus is taking it head on. And that one day He will finish the job. We see this in the way that Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits. We looked at this a little bit last week in verse 20. The first fruits, the early pieces, the little fruitlings of the harvest, which serve as a promise that there is more to come. That Jesus' life and His resurrection, His perfected life, His physically perfected life, His evil-less, sinless, brokenless, fully healed from all wounds life in His resurrection was actually, Paul tells us, just a sneak preview of what is yet to come, what God one day will do, not just for Jesus as an individual, but for all those who belong to Him. And not just spiritually, but also physically. And not just for people, but for the whole creation, the whole cosmos. One day, Paul tells us in verse 28, God will be all in all. Filling all things with His power and His grace and His presence. So that God in joyful justice and wholeness will be supreme. Does it make you hungry for that? Because this is, Paul says, what we're to take away from the resurrection of Jesus. A down payment guaranteeing what is yet to come and what will one day surely come. A restored world. A new creation. He's begun it. He will do it. It's meant to stoke our imaginations, friends. It's actually an invitation, Jesus' resurrection. To dream as you walk around life and you experience the different forms of woundedness and death and decay and brokenness and the flaws and limitations of life. It's an invitation to imagine what could our world be like 
if it was all that God meant it to be and all that it one day will be. Because Jesus' resurrection promises that it will be that one day. And not just our world in the abstract, but our neighborhood. You know, the vision of this church is not just to be a church, but through a church to actually ignite a grand vision for this neighborhood to be a true neighborhood. To function in all of its parts in the way that God designed human communities and neighborhood sidewalks and trees and physical structures as well as social structures to operate with wholeness and flourishing with, by, with people from the top to the bottom of people of all different kinds of backgrounds where we become restless when the parts don't fit or when the parts don't want to fit where we start to see that God really does want to reweave the social and economic and relational and cultural and aesthetic fabric of this neighborhood here, of these neighbors here, together in wholeness. He will complete that work one day, Paul tells us, perfectly, but he's begun it. Do you see signs of that? The reality of God breaking in to this world here in the present. The future resurrected world breaking into our little neighborhood where we start to see relationships operate as they were meant to operate in love and sacrificial service, in justice, in exchange of life, in conversation, in care. Um, I want to ask you in the coming week, would you please open your eyes and see what you see? And let the resurrection of Jesus stoke your imaginations of what one day will be. Because one of the greatest hindrances to our embracing this resurrection revolution is that all too often we're simply just too indifferent or too at home with the brokenness of the world as it presently is. And we live with it as if it's normal to walk by a homeless family begging for food or to live in the midst of office conflict and gossip as if that's the way that human beings were meant to operate when they unite their skills and their gifts and their personalities together. Or we act as if Different racial groups and ethnicities just were always meant to be uncomfortable, not realizing that that's not the way that God meant it to be. They were meant to be harmonizing, complementary parts, working in unison together in human community. But we're so at home with it. And we think it's normal. The resurrection tells us it is not And it one day will not be. 
And this is why theologian Jürgen Moltmann said these great provocative words that those who hope in Christ and His resurrection can no longer put up with reality as it is. You start to have a holy restlessness in your hearts. And you start to be hungry for that day when God will unveil to us this great, unimaginable new world that He's been constructing for us. Almost like, you know that show, Extreme Makeover Home Edition? Maybe you've seen on TV where they sponsor a family or an organization. You get some builders together to build this thing, but nobody gets to see it. We get the behind-the-scenes view of all that is being made and constructed and perfectly put together to uniquely meet the needs and almost always the wounds and limitations of a given family, whether if it's a disabled kid or a family that just hasn't had all the things that they've wanted in life. And here this building is going on, and finally at the end of the show, when every Everybody's in tears, of course, right? You can't hold back your tears watching Extreme Homemaker, uh, Extreme Makeover Home Edition, right? And finally, they stand before the home. They can't see anything. There's this massive bus in the way. And what do they say? Move that bus. And the bus moves out of the way. And everyone sees and falls to their knees with joy and seeing this grand thing that was built for them. Oh man, not even close, right? But something like that, something like that. When we'll finally see the way it all fits together, when we'll finally see the new creation and the new world that God has been constructing and one day will reveal to us through our Savior Jesus, who has defeated and dismantled the powers of evil and injustice. The resurrection is a restored creation. Secondly, the resurrection is a restored calling. A restored calling on our lives. I was talking the other day with Paula, my wife, about how it's so easy for me, I don't know if you're like this, it's so easy for me to daydream about what I might consider sort of the perfect existence. I mean, if I were to ask you the question, what, what's sort of the perfect life, the perfect human existence, what would it be? You know, for me, maybe it involves a hammock of some kind, you know, or some kind of a cocktail hanging out. But without question, no obligations, Right? No responsibilities. No call to love. I don't care about anyone. It's all about me, me, me. And Paul and I just talking about how, wow, that's, that's a dangerous thing to dream up, right? <laughs> Who knows where your heart might go if you fondle that dream a little bit too much in your heart. But that's what we kind of tend to think the pinnacle of humanity is. Just hakuna matata. No worries. No obligations. No love. No stewardship. No responsibility. And this passage tells us that couldn't be the further, furthest from the truth. That in fact, that God actually, Paul tells us, appointed and originally appointed human beings to be little kings and little queens 
as caretakers over the material world that he gave them. Cultivators, creative stewards, self-sacrificing leaders and protectors over this world. He gave it to us and we fail at that. If you notice here in verse 27, this is what Paul is getting at. Where he said, humanity's original design we find in this quotation from Psalm chapter 8. He quotes that he has put everything under his feet. And if you were to flip back to Psalm 8, it's one of the most glorious little poems or songs. That's what a psalm is, a prayer song that was written by King David where it's extolling the incredibly humbling and yet heightened place in the order of the universe that God has placed humanity. You crowned Him, humanity, with honor and glory. You made Him a ruler. You gave Him dominion over the works of your hands. And He said, you put everything here in this world under His feet. All flocks and herds, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. God calls us to be deputy rulers. Little kings and queens over His created world. On God's behalf. And here we have Paul saying, remember, Jesus is the new Adam. The first one failing in this calling to oversee and generously lead and care for this world. With the heart of Adam, which is still in all of us, our father Adam. This impulse that says, I don't care. It's all about me. Stewarding, caring, providing. I want to be served and not serve. I want to be God and not be the sort of little king and queen that God desires me to be over this world. So steps in Jesus here, the new Adam, who finally fulfills everything that humanity was meant to be. Friends, will you hear this? Jesus was the most truly human, human being that ever lived. And what we find in him is a restored version of what it means to be you. That the Christian faith is not a faith that tries to pluck you out of what you believe to be humanity, shackling you down and making you subhuman or less human. Granted, we might need to work through the definitions of these things, and we can talk about that. But becoming a follower of Jesus is meant to unleash true humanity in you, part of which this passage tells us is to be back on board with our original calling to rule over all things as deputy managers and stewards and creative cultivators of this earth. Of protecting this world from evil and injustice. To simply do what we were always meant to do. Do And do you hear the implications of this? 
That having social responsibility as a person in relationship with God, as a person restored in the new Adam Jesus to true humanity, social responsibility, therefore, friends, is not an extracurricular activity, an optional thing. It is very basic to who we were meant to be in this world as those crowned with honor and glory, deputized stewards of this world, little images of God himself, little kings and queens. So Jesus' resurrection, therefore, means that a restoration of our calling. Not just a renewed and restored creation, but a restored calling. Where God says, look, put this victory of Jesus raised from the dead into practice in daily life. Celebrating and anticipating in the present God's future healing of this world. Plant little flags of victory over evil and injustice. Over the power of brokenness. Plant little flags that point forward to this day that one day is coming. To say in the face of evil that one day you too will be destroyed in disorderly relationships or disorderly file cabinets at work to bring order and wholeness and in doing so to say, this is the world that God meant to make and one day will remake. Planting a flag of victory in the midst of brokenness and evil in our relationships, in our home life, with our roommates and our spouses and people in our lives, especially these flags of victory over the evil in our hearts, which is a good place to start. My need to see Jesus forgive me of the evil in my heart, to conquer the resistance to God that is right here as part of my being restored to true humanity. To do this in our workplaces and in our blocks and in our neighborhood. To look out as we talked about before and to see what this place could be. And then now with new energy and new imagination to labor with love to see it happen. And with vigilance when we see injustice pop up to say, not on our watch. Not while we're here. And to plant that flag there. And just to make this a little bit more concrete, we can talk about this in the ways in which we as a church do desire strategically, lovingly, caringly to serve and to build relationships with the kids in our neighborhood. And just in all the ways that we feel compelled to do urban youth ministry and outreach here in this area is a key way to build into the lives of our neighbors, to actually extend ourselves into the neighborhood where we're building relationships 
with kids who day in and day out really are battling the realities of injustice and evil and brokenness. Kids who come from families mired in poverty. Where according to the latest estimates, close to one in four children here in this very neighborhood, one in four are growing up in poverty. That's about 1,500 kids right around here. Kids who, though they live just two or three blocks away from the Columbia Heights metro station right over here, because of the local dynamics of the street crews, the territorialism of where you were born and grew up and where you're allowed to just walk, let alone hang, kids who live three blocks away from the metro who cannot take this metro stop, this one that you and I take every single day, but they cannot because it's not safe. Kids who hang out at the rec center, Gerard and 15th Street, where we're building relationships Kids who hang out there, even though they're underage, after hours. Why? Because mom says, don't come home until after 9 p.m. Because she's hanging out with friends, smoking crack. Kids whose schools, because of no fault in their own, simply because they were born here into the families that they have and having the lives that they have, are being educated in schools that are laboring hard, by God's grace and by a lot of your labor, teachers and educators in our midst, but whose schools do struggle. Three-quarters of students at Cardozo High School who are not meeting reading or math standards. Two-thirds of students at Tubman Elementary who are not meeting standards in reading. And the list, you could just go on and on and on and just talk about the plight and the challenges of just this one sector of our neighborhood and the lives of our neighbors. And we can talk about this part and that part. I'm just focusing on one that God has placed on the collective heart of this community, this church. But here's the invitation to put Jesus' victory over all dominion and over all powers that oppose Him into practice. To have one foot solidly in this broken world as it really is, and another foot firmly planted in the new world that is coming. And to say, this is what it means to live as a follower of the resurrected Jesus. On the one hand, not being naive or idealistic or triumphalistic, sort of like this, we're going to change the world by our own effort sort of mentality. No, God's got to do that by His grace, by His power, and He one day will be, He will do it. Move that bus. It'll happen. And on the other hand, keeping us protected from cynicism or defeatism, The passivity that says, look, there's no point in even trying because the mountain is just too tall and we can't go anywhere, we can't do it. No, we've got one foot in new creation. God is on the move. And when Jesus rose from the dead, He not only gave us a preview and a picture of what is to come in the whole world and in this neighborhood and in the lives of all those who belong to Him, 
But He also gave us a power, an energy. He unleashed into this world resurrection reality. And He says, harness it, channel it, live it. Will we? Let's pray. God, we look to You for these things. Because who's, who else is going to do this? Who else is going to draw our hearts into this sort of calling? Who else is going to draw our attention to the reality of Your power remaking this world? Who else is going to help us to see but You? So we need You. God, by the power of Your resurrection, by the power of a guilt-free life, experiencing Your forgiveness, once and for all, and Your love, experiencing the power of Your resurrection. God, we want to offer ourselves to You. We want to give ourselves, our lives to You. That You would use us to be people of the resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing. Yeah.